0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Today on Obsessed with Design, we have a special rebroadcast of my conversation with Stacy Dyer, creative director of the audio software products company, Isotope, located in the Boston area. She's a designer, author, and as it turns out, also a vocalist. Stacy and I talk about her journey to publishing her first book, and we'll also unpack her favorite parts about working for Loctite, her brief stint in owning a cake baking shop, and a mostly white advertisement that, on a whim, landed her a dream client in the cigar industry. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation and the special rebroadcast of Stacy Dyer. All right guys, today we are welcoming the creative director of Isotope, a designer and author, Stacy Dyer. Stacy, thank you for being on obsessed with design.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat with you today.
0: Well, it's cool that we're talking today cuz I don't usually get an excuse to talk about this, but Stacy and I were introduced through our fantastic audio editor Jen Ed. So she's here in Indianapolis and uh but Stacy is in Boston, is that right? That's correct. So how do you know Jen?
1: So Jen and I got introduced primarily because she's also the host of an awesome podcast called The Brassy Broad. Um, And at the time, I was the creative strategist for a brand new product line at Isotope called Spire. And so she and I got on the podcast together. She asked me some great questions. And then we also dug into, you know, just being a brassy broad in the music industry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very cool. So obviously you're you're much more than a designer, but since the uh, name of our show is obsessed with design, we'll talk about that first. But tell me about your, your origin story as a designer and how you got into doing design professionally.
1: Sure. Um, let me just start by saying, if it weren't for Print Shop Deluxe in the late 80s, I would never have a career. <laughs> <laughs> I must have made my dad more things to bring to work with him when I was a kid on that really noisy dot matrix printer oh, than man. he ever thought possible.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to make that, that sound for not, too long.
1: You know, the preparations. Oh, man. Um, so I was always honestly obsessed with design as a kid. I There was some moment where... I went shopping with my mother and I must've been like six and I picked up a toy package and was like, Oh, they're just selling this for the packaging. They're not actually selling the toy. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently this has just been in me at a very young age. Um, let's see. So the, the rest of the origin story actually goes, um, I went to school for fine art and I took one class in graphic design and the head of the actual design department was scary She was known as Nazi Nancy. (laughs) And I also knew I have this innate sort of 30,000 foot view in me that I kind of can't turn off. And at the time when I was in college, I was like, well, I have access to all this awesome studio equipment and I probably won't be able to touch it again until I'm like in my late forties and I can audit a class. (laughs) So I just made a judgment call to keep focusing on, keep my, my academic studies on actual fine art. And a lot of printmaking and painting and hands-on stuff. Mm -hmm. But on the side, I always did design. I freelanced from the time I was probably a sophomore sophomore in college and then um, built a portfolio and applied early on in my senior year and got a job working in-house at Loctite, which was super awesome because the science nerd in me was really, really excited about their R&D department. Yeah. They were working on things. Let's see. So this is 2005. So they were working on super cool technology with light cure adhesives. <laughs> it looked like a Spencer's gift shop. <laughs> it was just black lights everywhere. <laughs> and from Loctite, I went over to work at a couple of different agencies. I worked at one called Red Rocket, which is now Milk. And I worked for a dinosaur agency that is no longer with us hmm. called uh, MDNC, and I went on from there to start my own firm and it was called Triple Frog. And I co-owned that with my business partner as well as we had like a super well-rounded team. Um, And at any given point over the six years, we had junior designer, art director, graphic designer, intern. And then the four of us on the management team were account, business, IT, and creative direction. And so from there, I jumped up to boston so that was in connecticut i moved up to boston took a job working in-house for a parent company of mostly like sports supplements and then vitamin supplements on that side and some Mm -hmm. skincare and then landed here at isotope
0: well very cool how did you um what what took you to the isotope route that seems like maybe the most distant from the other jumps
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I'm a vocalist as well. And that's part of the fun Mm. of talking with your fabulous editor, Jen Eds. Um, So it was always this sort of curiosity that I had when I would work in the studio with other musicians and other producers. And I'm like, man, I wonder who designs those plugins. Those things look dope. (laughs) (laughs) And this product design director role popped up in my job search and it was kind of like the mix of all my favorite things. Mm-hmm. So I could bring my hobby to work every day and I could help push the design department at large, which at the time they were outsourcing more things and not doing a lot of stuff in-house and also work on user experience at the same time. So that that was an excellent opportunity to just, mm-hmm. just sort of bring all of my entrepreneurial experience, design, and then just get to dig deep into something music related.
0: Cool. We'll definitely link to uh, Isotope in the show notes. But as I was looking at your website a little bit, like all of those, all of those different UI elements, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of super cool stuff. Looks like something out of CSI that I wouldn't know what to do with. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of outing myself on this episode that I, I'm not the one who does the audio editing of our of our show because I opened up, I think GarageBand and a couple other pieces of software. And I was like, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I give up. I'm <laughs> like, you let somebody else do this. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that we have people like Jen to help out there. But so speaking specifically about Isotope first of all, I want you to tell us kind of what your normal day looks like there now, but I, I think we should have you sing this response.
1: Oh God. Let me think about, (laughs) um, I, I used to be in a jazz band, so that's probably what you're going to (laughs) get. My average day usually starts with way too many things that I can't even name. Um,
0: (laughs) Bravo, by the way, I didn't expect (laughs) you to actually take me up on that, but that was awesome. (laughs) So now our listeners believe that you are actually a vocalist. So that's great.
1: Yes, this is true. (laughs) You can look it up. There is evidence out there. Let's see. So getting actually down to brass tacks here. My average day currently is, is like 52 pickup because, so I moved from being product design director to this creative strategist role I talked about at the opening of the show and have since moved into a new, new role called creative director, where we're combining both worlds of marketing design and product design. And so if you or your listeners are familiar with design thinking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or even Lean UX for that matter, I'm yeah. co- basically conducting a big batch of empathy interviews, problems and solutions, what's been going well, what hasn't been going well, what do you see as low-hanging fruit? How can we you know, jump off together really well and have a process that we can continuously iterate on so that this team can operate? as efficiently, but also as innovatively as possible. And then on the flip side, I still get my hands dirty in all the actual design work. So I QA, I've been QAing emails. Um, I'm working on some promotional materials for the NAB show that's coming up in Las Vegas.
0: <laughs> wow. So
1: again, it's very much like 52 pickup.
0: <laughs> very nice. How many other um, folks there uh, are working there that have a designer role or title?
1: There's four no five five of my direct reports and then there's also a handful on the content team. So, I'd say about eight.
0: Cool. Yeah. I don't know if you guys use uh, Litmus to test your emails, but we had Justine on from from Litmus, the email testing software oh, a few enough. weeks ago. So you have to check that out. Yeah. Very cool. And you know, one of the the ways that Jen had introduced you really had nothing to do with Isotope, ironically, but um, a lot of the designers that we've talked to on the show spend a lot of time talking us through some of their side projects and find those to be sometimes one of the most rewarding things they work on. So I'm curious to hear more about your book, which for, for those, we'll certainly link to this in the show notes too, but the book is called Wed the universe's most kick-ass wedding planning workbook. So you got to tell us about not only how you decided to write a book, but how you came across, all right, I want to write this killer wedding planning notebook. And how, how'd that all get started?
1: Let's see side projects. First of all, are definitely one of the most rewarding things. And I, I have to say, you know, I'm in like my 11th year of my official career since graduating college and this is the first time I've actually been able to design something with my target market in mind, but really for myself and what I love. And so there's, there's a particular sort of like vector illustration aesthetic. The whole book is space-themed. Mm-hmm. And it's also all of that user experience and process design knowledge that I've gathered over the years sort of crammed into one solution. So...
0: It's like your portfolio all in one printed piece.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If you want an example of what I can do, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So how did it get started? A while back, I started writing a memoir and it's kind of been on the shelf because memoirs sort of make you dig into your past and sometimes parts of your past isn't the most happiest thing to write about. So I kind of knew I needed a way to trick myself to just want to write all the time. Mm -hmm. So my husband... DJs on Block Island, which is this teeny tiny pork chop in the middle of the sea off the coast of Rhode Island. (laughs) Um, He DJs every Monday night. And so I have Mondays to myself for the entire summer. So I decided every Monday I'm going to write something, no matter how long or short it is. And then I'm going to start a blog just so that I'm putting content out there that I'm just kind of Pavlovianly getting into this habit. And we had just gotten married in May. And so most of the stuff that I started to write about was our wedding and just the process we went through, the struggles, the trials, the tribulations. um, Obviously, you know, designers are crafty people. There's a ton of DIY stuff that I just felt like I could share with other couples and that if they found it useful or they wanted to steal it and do it for their big day, go right ahead. Let's do this. So that was really the crux. And so I got to the end of the summer and I had this load of content. And I had submitted a handful of the posts to offbeatbride.com, which is this great offbeat wedding sort of uh, magazine blog situation.
0: As the name would imply.
1: Indeed. Um, and this one post called how to shop for your wedding dress, like a software engineer lit up. And so I I go into this whole weird approach that I was freaking out. I was never supposed to get married, but how am I going to prepare to go shopping for this outfit that's supposed to be the most meaningful thing I wear of all time, (laughs) unless I'm some, you know, amazing red carpet star. (laughs) (laughs) And so I dive into taking agile methodologies and applying it to prepping for going to shop. And then also some lean UX in there too. So it's like, your, your definition of ready is the, the pre-prep of like, oh, I don't want to wear a bra. I don't want to wear heels any higher than two inches. Uh, so I bring these things with me. I do my hair in a way that is going to resemble the way I think I'm going to wear it so that I know what it's going to look like at the end of the day. Um, and then the Lean UX side of it was all, every time you try on a different dress, you're prototyping.
0: Mm-hmm. And every
1: time you hang one up, you know you've, you've made a decision. So just moving through those exercises in a blog post and offbeat bride readers were like, super excited. I had software people that were like, oh my God, did you also have a definition of done? Did you, what did you move through for your other set of requirements? You know, they're digging in real deep on the agile side of things. (laughs) And then I had the non-software people, and this was the real tipping point for me, say, I thought this was going to be the most boring post ever. And then I read it and it's amazing. I'm totally going to do this. I'm going <laughs> shopping this weekend for my dress.
0: <laughs> so you have like part two, how to QA your wedding dress. and
1: Kind of. Yeah, exactly. So the, the moral of the story was that this idea of taking process design and applying it to any part of wedding stuff was really starting to gel and starting to make sense. And so I was like, okay. By the end of the summer, I have enough content that I could totally write a book. Uh, We could just organize the chapters, I could work with an editor and make this happen. And then I think I could design a process or like a template that any couple could take with them to a vendor to when they go to Michael's craft store to buy table favor stuff. I mean, anything. And that was the real impetus for it
0: so, of course, I'm not in the market for wedding, but uh, you were kind enough to send me a copy so I could get a look. And as you were kind of describing the space theme and the the vector style, can you describe a little bit more of what like a typical section or page looks like and how the how the user might interact with this differently than a standard wedding planning guide?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, So there's Martian landscape. There's like red, mostly red landscape on the footer of most every page in the introduction. I'm really obsessed with going to antique shops and photographing vintage designed things. Mm -hmm. So there's shapes and illustrations that are based on things that came before the space program actually came to light. Um, So you'll see these really weird looking retro satellites or a sun that also has a symbol overlaid on it that makes it look like it should be inside of the movie Alien. Um, And then at the same time, the color scheme is very, very retro. It's bright and it's happy, but it's gender neutral. So there's a super saturated coral, chartreuse Mm -hmm. yellow, an army kind of dark gray green and then there's some accent colors like a teal um and a really warm rich almost like purpley black
0: yeah i, w- I would say i've been walking around with this for the last couple of days and outside of the fact that it said wedding planning on the on the side and i've been married for almost 16 years that was the only part that i felt weird about walking around <laughs> with it. it it's you know it's not pink and purple and flowery and it's not super girly it is very gender neutral and you know, when you and I first got introduced after I had a chance to look at the book, I was, I was really impressed. This is the super print nerd deep down inside of me, but I I was really impressed with the printing quality. It's, you know, it's full color throughout the book. So, um, I guess let's take the rabbit out of the bag. Tell them about like the, the printing production and how many of these you printed and what that, what that's all like.
1: Sure. So I, I took this whole opportunity to, uh, make it an experiment. I've been treating this whole thing like it's an experiment because I had never used a vendor like CreateSpace before. And CreateSpace is a print-on-demand company that Amazon owns. The whole thing is quite seamless. Um, you don't have to pre-order any copies for yourself. You don't have to order you know, a stack of a thousand and let them live in your living room, staring at you every day, reminding you what you haven't sold. (laughs) But the flip side of it is that it was super risky to do full flooded, full color prints for every single worksheet page, let alone, you know, the illustrations and the introduction um, on a digital printing vendor. I had no idea what the cover finish was going to be like. I had no idea what the quality was going to be like. And I know you and I were talking about this, but I was really happy, thrilled with what pr- the production actually was when I got my first proof. The saturation of the colors even mm-hmm. was probably the most surprising thing for me.
0: It kind of makes me want to like hop in the car and go figure out wherever Space is producing these and like watch one of them come off of their, their presses, whatever that means. I you would know?
1: love to go on a tour. That's probably my favorite part of working with traditional print vendors. You get to see things, you know, where's your yeah. weapons? Where's your cutting line?
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember for for years professionally, I was trying to see somebody do foil stamping live. Like, <gasps> so you do the foil here? Oh, no, we send it out for the foil. Ah, dang it. I or the spot UV. Yeah, I show, always had... show me how that works. Yeah. <laughs>
1: where's all your drying racks? You must have a space that you need to actually let this thing dry, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I was the guy that anytime I worked for somebody else on my first week, I would get on the server and open up the InDesign files or Illustrator files. And it was probably Quark Express back in that day, actually. So, you know, want to see like how the file was put together. And I know I like this print sample, but what, you know, what are the pieces that made it look the way that it looks like? And yeah, super nerd stuff, but
1: it's it's just it's it's been really nice, honestly, to dig back into something analog that's just paper and ink. And as much as we are an app driven economy, we are on the net, we are I like saying the net lately. It makes me feel like I'm back in the nineties. <laughs> um, you know, we're we're all
0: we're, the kids will be saying it soon. Yes.
1: That's what I'm hoping. All you urban outfitter buyers, keep an eye on that phrase. Um, <laughs> But I really wanted to sort of take an additional risk and say, you know, there's a scientific reason why I want people to write down what they want to do and what they don't want to do in their wedding. Um, But there's also something beautiful about being able to hold this book that contains all of the stuff. This is your journey to marrying the person that you fell in love with. And there's something to be said about that. I don't know. There's something delightfully sentimental and... Being able to hold something tangible is not something we get to do very often, I feel like anymore.
0: Sure. Well, I think um, not to get too philosophical about it, but it, I think if you as a couple can sit down together and and agree to these things, like get it down on paper and and say yes to this and yes to this and no to that and no to that and yes to this and maybe to this, like you had the conversation. You don't get to the day and go, well, why did we do it that way? And why why didn't we do it some other way? You know, this thing I think helped actually helps you to force yourself to sit down and talk through those things. Absolutely. Yep. So one of the things that I liked a lot that I I think I may even turn loose on a few clients is your Macaw thing. So tell us about what Macaw is.
1: So Macaw is a must, could, won't chart. It's three separate buckets. One does not correlate to the other. And you use it to say things like, let's see. So for our listeners of this podcast, and you're working with a client And you're doing a rebrand. And you want to understand where they once were and where they're headed. And you can have them do a must-could-won't exercise or a macaw and say, what must this new logo be? What could this logo be? What absolutely will this logo not be? Mm -hmm. And even if they don't know where to start, oftentimes you're on either sides of the coin. It's either, I know exactly what this absolutely has to be. or The only thing I know is it absolutely can't be orange because little Joey in second grade threw up on the table and that's all I think about when I see the (laughs) color orange. That's really what a client said to me, by the way. That's real data. (laughs) (laughs) And this kind of stems from an early creative brief strategy I had when I was running Triple Frog because you didn't want to get to the table after, you know, working tireless hours on a first round and then learn... (laughs) these things after the fact, if you yeah. can be proactive and start to understand, but also engage in that conversation, there's just so much more energy. And then it also, it'll just help <laughs> bottom line. It will help you. It will help them.
0: <laughs> so one of the other things that you mentioned, um, was, is it time machine? Yeah. The other exercises to so explain how time machine works.
1: So I've done some workshops and some public speaking gigs on Sharing the good word of premortems. And a premortem is basically to make a bold statement that whatever you're trying to do has absolutely failed. And everyone in the room takes a few minutes to write down reasons why that thing could have failed. And by doing so ahead of schedule, you do this at the outset, (laughs) at the start of a project, you identify potential holes, potential risks. And then you can, as a group, Mitigate those risks long before they ever crop up. So, again, it's all speaking to mm, how to be mm-hmm. proactive. So, pre-mortem, post-mortem, mortem. Mortem's a bad word. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to talk about <laughs> those kind of things with weddings. So, I wanted to take that concept and rebrand it in a way that fit AstroWed. And so, I asked couples to get into their time machine.
0: <laughs> yeah. You get
1: into your time machine, you get to your big day, you close your eyes, and you imagine this wedding venue has failed. How has it failed you? Write it down. Mm -hmm. How will you stop this from failing tomorrow? Write that down. And then you move to the other side of the coin and say, this wedding venue has been awesome. Write down how it's been awesome. Why is it kicked ass? How are you going to make sure that it keeps kicking ass? And that's the purpose of the time machine.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's definitely another one of those things that we could could use in our day-to-day client work about, you know, whether it's a, a new user interface or a website or a rebrand and think about all the ways that that rebrand could go right and all the ways that it could go wrong and why and things we could look out for to make sure that doesn't happen.
1: Absolutely. We did something similar um, when we were branding Spire where we did this public dot vote system. we had created, I don't know, 12 or 15 different logos, had put them up on on the wall in our massive multipurpose space and asked for everyone to sort of write down like, what's good about this? What's bad about this? But what cropped up from that similar-ish exercise was things like, this looks like the Dorito logo. This looks like other copyright issue. It's like you're Mm -hmm. one person. You can only always think about competitive analysis to a certain ceiling on that day. So when you engage in other people, you get this collective crowd mind That says, oh, my God, this looks like that thing that I've seen before. And in branding, as you know, you want to be able to trademark things, copyright things, make sure that it's 100 percent original. And we're inspired by the stuff that's around us. It's no harm, no foul. Sure. Just get to that question early.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole um, this looks exactly like that other thing is usually not a great thing when it comes to trademark law, (laughs) (laughs) intellectual property and whatnot.
1: Exactly. Let's avoid
0: that. (laughs) Judging by the back of the book here, this is not going to be your last Astrowed project. What else is in the pipeline for you?
1: So, well, let's see. When I started writing the book, it began as 20 chapters of true stories and pro tips and DIY, in addition to the workbook side with all the worksheets and the process and the pages Mm -hmm. and an introduction on how to use that thing. And it was too big. (laughs) (laughs) I made a paper prototype at good old Kinko's like I was back in college. Um, And it was like three books in one. So I took a look at the chapter selections and I started to highlight the buckets. And I saw that there was a huge set of themes and it was like, okay, this is an awesome problem to have because now we can move from one gigantic telephone (laughs) like book to a series which is always advantageous when it comes to being a new author and trying to build a platform that people can get involved in so the first is the workbook and the second that will come out will be the top 10 wedding decisions um which is just basically drilling down into some of my experience and then providing some pro tips but then also including sample worksheets that I used during our wedding process. So it further teaches people how to use those worksheets.
0: Very cool. And uh, how soon do you think those other books will be out?
1: I'm hoping the top 10 book comes out during the summer.
0: Very cool. So now that you've been through this process um, on your first book, what, what do you think you would have changed or what would you have done differently, if anything, for the wedding planning workbook?
1: I think I probably would have asked myself a lot more lead generation slash business strategy questions mm-hmm. because the paper prototype got to this point and I had done, you know, nonstop work after work on weekends to design the whole thing in its entirety, just as a rough pass in InDesign for the whole month of December. And I could have avoided that if I just stopped and asked myself, what are you actually selling? What's the thing Mm. that you want people to pick up and go, I get it. This is super helpful. The stories don't really matter. They're more supporting content. And even on the DIY side, not every couple is going to do something DIY. So again, that's tertiary. So I think had I asked myself that question and realized that the workbook was the thing, I could have just focused my energy on that and not done all of the front work of having essentially two books (laughs) (laughs) at the outset and then dividing it into three.
0: The good news is now you have three books. Right. So it could have been worse. And you said you were doing this just on, on Mondays. I'm kind of curious how, how long it took you to get to this point and how long you think you would spend on average, like on a given, given week on the Astrowed project.
1: Sure. So I was just writing, uh, the posts on Monday nights. And then once the summer was over, I used a, um, an awesome new platform called Readsy, R E E D S Y. Um, that just connects authors with, uh, publicists, cover designers and editors. And so I found my editor through Readsy at the end of September. And you're able to like, quote out five different people and send them samples of your work and see if they understand what your goals are and your voice. Um, For those listening, I'm sure they can gather that I'm not, you know, the most conservative person when it comes to having an author voice. So it was really, really important that they were comfortable working on a project that was um, LGBT friendly Mm -hmm. and that there's curse words in there, (laughs) mostly for color, but you know, there's (laughs) It's very punchy. It's 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 me, you know. As much as I want people to take away the important things about how to make their wedding theirs, I wanted there to be a voice that was a little different than the traditional stuff. And I, again, it was like I'm writing this for me at the end of the day. So how can I find an editor that allows me to be myself? So the editor and I worked together uh, from the end of September through just before Thanksgiving. And then she was traveling. She was in London, but her family was in Canada. So she took three weeks in December. And I was like, great, well, you're gone. I'm going, to de- I'm going to design this whole thing so we can look at it together. And I'm going to send you a prototype and I'm going to look at a prototype and then let's get on Skype and see what we think the next steps are.
0: That's and a so, big goal. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> it was entirely ambitious, <laughs> but it happened. It finished and nice. I think I sent her that. Paper prototype on like January 3rd. So
0: was she shocked or impressed that you stuck to your own schedule?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, she was. Absolutely.
0: That's probably the first time that's ever happened to her if I had to guess.
1: I, I think you're right. She's usually used to working on fiction. So all
0: <laughs> oh, right. not too many fiction authors are like, and I'm going to design the cover and I'm going to lay out all the pages
1: and I'm going to do the illustrations and all the things. Yeah. Yep all of that. So then after we looked at the paper prototype, made the, the decision to focus on the workbook, um, we had to do some severe editing on the introduction just to make sure that like it was written to that purpose. And then I'd say from like mid January to middle of February, it was just wrapping up the final design, final design, moving through her edits and the PDFs, all of that. And then I just spent the rest of February proofing just nonstop. Like I went through four rounds of proofing with create space. So for your listeners, and if you're curious, Josh, Mm, um, as you move through this process, so it's, it's like anything else. You upload your PDF for your cover, you upload a PDF for your interior, and then you view, um, a digital proof that you can sort of like flip the pages, like old school flash.
0: Oh yeah. Everybody loves a little flash.
1: Oh yeah, man. That's the only code I can write, by the way. Action script. <laughs> you um, <and> me both. <laughs> so, you can order however many proofs you want once you get to that phase. And then you just have to re upload a new interior cover file in order to get through the proofing process once again. But, goddamn, every single proof you'd find something else. You'd be, you know, the first time you read through it, you find all of these types of things. And then mm-hmm. the next time you look at it, you find those types of things. So, I was really hell bent on focusing on the design of this thing, of this book, and that I wanted the design of it to stick out as much as its message, its gender neutrality, and its purpose in the wedding industry. But, you know, as a graphic designer, I respect the craft and I wanted to be respected for the craft. So I definitely spent a good month just proofing and editing and fine tuning all of the illustrations, the forms, everything.
0: So then at what point were you able to see an actual physical book in your hands?
1: During that, that proofing phase. So once you okay. view the digital, then you're like, yep, I would like to, you press the button you say you want to order a tangible copy.
0: Oh, very cool. And then it, it's all the, the actual cover stock and all the, the real pages yeah. and everything's the same.
1: Yeah, it's exactly the same, which I had kind of guessed would be the case because you figure they're print on demand. I can't imagine they'd change machines or right. that they'd have people hand comping, you
0: know, the Mm -hmm. book. Well, again, we have zero sponsors on this show and certainly create space is not currently a sponsor, but it's just a really cool piece. And I love that you went with the matte cover, which has that, that really great kind of touch feel to it. And it's, you know, so much of your design too, is flat, solid colors. And it just doesn't look like a digital piece. It looks very much like a high-end offset print, so congratulations on finding a vendor that that kind of got that figured out.:
1: Thank you, and thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it
0: well let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. So the other side project that you mentioned may be working on in the future is your memoirs. So tell me about how you decided to want to do your own memoirs.
1: Sure. let's see. So when I owned Triple Frog, I also co-owned a wedding cake bakery. I was not the baker. I was just the investor and manager. We got to this point in the design firm where we were like, hey, we could create our own clients. Let's do this. (laughs) So uh, three years in, we were sort of running two companies. The twist in the story is that I was running both of those companies with a guy who's now my ex, and we were together for 10 years. And we were never going to get married because we were already married by the two businesses. But there's a lot of lessons. There's a lot of entrepreneurial gusto. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of story within that story that it's just really important to share with the world. Um, so I've been working on it in the background for a number of years. But I've been trying to find the right way to package the story. Mm-hmm. Memoir is like a... It's a flexible genre creative nonfiction so i i've befriended this lovely woman katie eelman who works at this bookstore in jamaica plain called paper cuts um mm-hmm. she's been incredible at just funneling different types of contemporary nonfiction my way and i've been drawn to these books that are written like tiny vignettes really super short very concise um beautifully written teeny tiny chapters sometimes they're like three sentences sometimes they're a page and a half but often you feel like you're walking through a gallery you know when you go to a modern art museum and you read the plaque on the wall and then you step back and you allow that context to inform the work that you're looking at yeah and then either you go back to the wall and you read the plaque one more time and then you stare at it again and you decide whether or not you want to move on to the next piece that's what it's like reading this kind of creative Mm. nonfiction. Um, so that's where I'm starting to head. So when I get tired of writing for the masses and writing to help everybody else, I, I get to these breaking points where I'm like, I need to write for me today. And sometimes something happens that it triggers a memory and I need to just exercise the demon. So I, I try to do a little experiment every once in a while and write in that form.
0: That reminds me a little bit of the format of uh, Rework by Jason Fried from Basecamp. Fame, where the whole book is just kind of like, sometimes it's a paragraph and sometimes it's two or three pages, but it's really not longer than that. And each little section is more of a lesson.
1: Right. Right. There's something really curious about short form that, you know, I I didn't go to school for writing, so I, I don't have a severe education on these different types. Like you go to school for art and design and you know that there's offset printing and there's digital printing and there's embossing and there's all these things, but I don't have that for writing. So it's been hugely helpful as well as just a really curious learning curve to, to dive into different styles and formats of storytelling.
0: Yeah. I think that whole storytelling is thing is very interesting, especially as how that works into, you know, our design creative pieces as well, and maybe Speaking of design again, (laughs) Um, so, you know, everybody that we talk to, we always try to uncover what the thing is they are most obsessed with right now. So what do you think that is for you?
1: What am I most obsessed with right now? I'd say the science behind why we're drawn to things or why we do or don't do things. I've been... Reading tons and tons of books like Blue Mind, Downward Spiral. I just went to a screening of Dan Ariely's Dishonesty, which is a great um, documentary on his, his work revolving around why people lie. There's just mm. something really curious from that user experience side of things, but also that the humanness of why we do the things we do, and that sometimes you have to meet your brain in the middle. And often we don't know how to do that. So I don't know. It's (laughs) a weird quote. (laughs) (laughs) If there's anything I learned from Alex Korb, who's the PhD and author of Downward Spiral, I quote him a bunch in the introduction to AstroWid, actually. Um, it's, It's just that your brain has a certain way of learning and adapting things, and its intelligence has a consistency to it, but you have to know when it's going to keep being consistent when you don't need it to be. (laughs) So
0: if I could figure out why my four-year-old does that, then (laughs) I would, we would be very happy parents. If we could understand why sometimes he chooses to listen and why sometimes we're most of the time he doesn't.
1: Right. Exactly. Those simple, simple things.
0: Do you have any, I mean, you've, you've done such a wide variety of things between, you know, Owning a cake baking shop, and writing a book and illustrating it, and publishing it, and working at agencies and uh, you know in house for Loctite. What do you think is a dream project that you'd like to tackle in the future?
1: I'd still love to do a really successful repackaging project, where you take something that's kind of been flopping out on the shelves lately. And again, I have this love for for the tangible because it's just not it's still not, it's just not as prevalent as it used to be mm-hmm. um, but I've always had this dream of taking like a skew of twelve products within a family and being able to completely redesign their packaging as a whole, make them look like a family, but also make them stand out individually
0: yeah
1: and have that be like super successful sales wise
0: that's cool have you um have you had a chance to do much in the packaging world in the past?
1: Not as much as I would like. That's definitely part of the reason.
0: Yeah, that would be a, a good challenge. What about inspiration? What do you Where do you go for fresh ideas and to get kind of a fresh look at things or just to think through things?
1: I just got the latest issue of Modern Driver magazine. And I have to say, <laughs> the new Bugatti Chiron is ridiculous and very (laughs) inspiring.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who isn't inspired by supercars? I mean, really.
1: Yeah. And I've, I just, I've always had a thing for supercars. I think my husband would tell you that I've nearly broken his hand when an R8 or a Lamborghini has driven by (laughs) in front of me. Um, So this has always been an excitement thing. (laughs) But um, what's interesting about that, that car is that They only make 70 a year, seven zero. Mm. You have to make some serious decisions to make a $2.7 million car that you're only going to make 70 editions of Mm -hmm. in order to know that it's worth it. Yeah. There's, I don't know, there's something really interesting about that. So there's that side of inspiration. And you know what I've been doing lately? And I encourage you to do this too. Um, I have notebooks everywhere in my apartment and in my backpack. I have multiple notebooks. And so I just, I bought a very special one that's more flat, like a magazine. Um, I think it's one of the Fabriano styles. And I've been going through all of my notebooks about Astrowed and cataloging and sort of categorizing and putting things into buckets because I listen to podcasts all the time. It's such a huge part of my inspiration on a regular basis but I have these notes from all these podcasts all over the place. And it's been amazing to see where I was and what I've done. And then also all of these crazy ideas that I had along the way that I haven't yet been able to act on, but now I have them in this place and they're fresh and top of my mind. And now I'll have this, again, this, the single unit book, filled with all of these ideas and notes and places and I can highlight them in a meaningful way and it won't feel like buckshot.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's um, that's really similar to our guest from uh, a couple weeks back was Eric Cass, who's a, another Indianapolis guy, but he's got a, a site that he created a project he created called Ephemerotica. And it's like all these things that he just sort of found along his way and um, started collecting them and putting them in books and it's it's really cool when we uncover, you know, what seems like such specific behaviors and different designers and different markets and totally different industries who are, you know, using similar methods to, to think through stuff and solve problems. I think that's really cool.
1: Definitely. And there's been a lot of fodder around, you know, being comfortable with throwing your ideas out. There's this big movement, I want to say, in like 2014 the design team and I had gone to a bunch of conferences and they kept talking about how like, be comfortable throwing your ideas in the trash, blah, 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 blah. In my mind, it's like, don't think of throwing them in the trash, put them on the bookshelf and keep them in a sketchbook because you never know when you're going to pull that idea out again and say, oh, I learned something from that thing. Mm -hmm. We could totally apply that here. And so I'm finally putting that little bit of preaching into action and it's way more rewarding than I expected.
0: Yeah, I think in the old school advertising world they would call that the morgue, like the place that you just keep all the things that you'd file, which is, you know, goes right up there with our earlier conversation about death and postmortem, but, <laughs> 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 but there was like an intentional thing play. they used to do, and and nobody talks about having a morgue anymore for all of that kind of stuff.
1: Right, right. Even um the early, early first, it was either the first or second website for Triple Frog that we built. I had a page called The Fridge because innately you end up creating concepts for different clients that never come to fruition, but they're finished designs or they're finished enough that other people in the company are really proud of it. So we put those different bits and pieces on a page that was like on a little tiny retro fridge and literally had them like magnets and you could click on them and, you know, in old school flash realms, they would like zoom out. Oh yeah, nice. (laughs) Bring that magnet to you and just be able to look at some of the things that never made it out into the real world, but were still worth looking at.
0: What do you think is one of your proudest moments as a designer?
1: I have to say, the Nub Cigar campaign, hands down.
0: So tell us about why that.
1: Nub Cigar was a fine example of my. Superhero power, which is (laughs) I just jump in the pool. Don't tell me the temperature of the water. Don't tell me when you need it. Like, I'm just going to do it. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Nice. And with Nub, my mom had gotten us a subscription to Cigar Aficionado. And I'm flipping through the magazine, flipping through the magazine page. Dark brown page. Black page. Super dark page. Really low light page. Oh my God, there's a white ad in a sea of pretty much monochromatic cigar ads and nub was standing out and sticking out like a sore thumb and if you know marty newmeyer's work at all um Mm -hmm. his book zag is one of my favorite mantras of all times when everybody zigs you should zag and that's what nub was doing they had this white ad they did this thing called an ash stand uh the the cigars were super short and they were um they were short and thick and that was supposed to be because it was the sweet spot of every cigar. That's really all you needed in order to get to the heart yeah. of a cigar. So when you smoke them all the way down, if the ash stays intact, you can flip it on its ash and do an ash stand. And that was it. That was the ad. There was just this lots of white space on a white background in a sea of brown ads. And I was like, I got to reach out to them. This we we want clients like this. Let's do this. And I sent an email through their contact form, went on vacation, I think, with like my parents or something like the next week. And Sam Lucia gave me a call who was the figurehead at the time of, of Nub Cigar and was like, hey, we're planning a rock and roll tour. Would you be interested in getting in on that? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. You need me to book local bands across the country and make swag and do a website redesign and work on packaging? Yes.
0: <laughs> Let me think about that.
1: Let me think about that. I I think that sounds terrible. We don't want anything to do with that. But we did everything for that campaign. It was so much fun. We packed the swag bags and we made the swag, you know. We we had outsourced our limited edition VIP pass lanyard tubos <laughs> from China which got caught on a plane over to the U.S. because a volcano had erupted. And I still have a screenshot of the UPS natural disaster update. <laughs> 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 there was just so much stuff that happened during that project that was just super memorable, really successful. The logo that we made that year for that that campaign ended up getting published by uh, Logo Lounge. It, it was just super fun.
0: Nice. Do you have any design heroes or people that you Uh, especially looked up to
1: yes i have two one is marion banties she is probably the most prolific infographic slash typographic she'll design with sugar or flower petals and sax fifth avenue will hire her to do their In-store decorations, as well as a series of gift bags for the holiday season, and then she'll get hired to do something completely different and provide, you know, like a census infographic for the town of Portland, Oregon. I don't know if that's what she's done, but there's things (laughs) like that out there. She probably has. I'm sure she has. Um, I believe she's Canadian. Uh, She her work is just so specific to her style. It's just unlike anything else I've ever seen and stunningly beautiful, but also purposeful. And she's also another one that has put out scores of books or projects, or like I have a, a foil printed limited edition print from a nonprofit campaign she did that you could purchase, you know, and all the money ended up going back to whatever the nonprofit was, but it's, it's gorgeous. And it's on metallic paper, just ugh, nerd over it all day long. Um, And then on the flip side, Dave McKean, he's the designer, illustrator of a lot of record covers that most people are familiar with. So if you remember uh, Counting Crows, the fishbowl head guy, Mm -hmm. uh, he did that. He did Fear Factory with the brain and the spine sperm shapes. Um, He's done a lot of really interesting mixed media photoshoppy layers just a really cool style but also sort of breaks ground in the graphic novel side of things as well Oh, yeah, cool yeah
0: we'll have to link to both of those designers in the show notes so folks can see more about uh about what they're up to so as we're kind of wrapping up here as you get in your time machine what do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now
1: I think I'll definitely be auditing those classes at my alma mater. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be that crazy off kilter (laughs) older lady that nobody knows why she's here.
0: (laughs) You could probably be teaching those classes at your alma mater by then.
1: That's the other thing. I'd love to, you know, do a couple of adjunct professor sort of roles. I've taught some classes here and there. um, And I just love going back and speaking and, and, you know, talking to the kids there, but that's, that's really where I hope I end up landing.
0: Very cool. I love it. I love to love to get hit with a truck full of money and then just be able to go teach. I think that'd be fun too. I like that idea. (laughs) Especially the truck full of money part. I think that's great. Well, I appreciate you, Stacey, for taking so much time to chat with us today. Tell us a little bit more about um, where you're, new fans can find you online or uh, learn more about you and buy your book and all that good stuff?
1: Sure. So the blog that I regularly write on when I have time in between (laughs) is stacysdiylife.com and it's S-T-A-C-E-Y for the multiple ways that you can spell my first name. Um, The book, you can find out all kinds of stuff about the book at astro-wed.com. And you can just go to Amazon and search for Astrowed and you'll find it first, right off the rip.
0: Very awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Stacey. You've had lots of of good uh, stories for us and you are the first ever and maybe the last ever guest who will sing one of their responses.
1: (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Oh, double (laughs) win. We are the best. Okay. So with that, thank you so much for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 86 in the books. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. Also follow us on Twitter. We're at obsessed show. If you have thoughts on who you'd like to hear me interview next, please hit us up. I'm at Josh Miles. While you're at it, head over to iTunes and subscribe to Obsessed with Design. We'd love to have a rating and review to help others find the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.